Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with the entire conclave. Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Coons, David Bukes, and David Apple. Aaron Upoff cannot be joining us. He has been hurried away to the hollow earth. We don't really know what's happened to him, but just remember him uh, in your thoughts, because we hope to get Aaron delivered from that and back to us as soon as possible. He is the key to the Shaver mystery, and so we hope that we can retrieve him before too long. So, the Conclave has reconvened, so you know what that means. We're going to be answering listener questions, but first, gentlemen, how is the weather? The weather is doing great up here in North Dakota. It's been snowing today, and that always warms my heart because I I enjoy the cold weather. And, I don't know, things are... Things are looking pretty good right now for North Dakota. <laughs> David Bukes, we're just going to go in a descending order, starting with the tundra on down. Yeah, you know, we were a little disappointed in winter because we didn't get much snow, and now uh, we've got a thick layer of ice, so we're really not not sure what to do here in central Minnesota, but I think we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. We've got our ice skates on, everything's going to be okay. Adam, how are things in Fort Wayne from the virtual symposia, or as I like to call it, shaking hands with gloves? How are, how's the weather down in Fort Wayne? Outstanding. Snowing right now, so cozy symposia weather. Wish you guys were here. Love you. Miss you. <laughs> XOXO. Right. Well, maybe, maybe next year when the walls are taken down, we can all have a gulag uh, symposia. That might, be, that might be fun. There you go. Uh, David. Yeah, uh, I'm, the southern, Apple, I should say. I, I'm the southern end here. Uh, we had, it did snow the other day, brief flurry. My children ran outside with their socks off and uh, tried to catch <laughs> snowflakes on their tongue. That lasted about 10 minutes. It was uh, 45 and sunny, lots of vitamin D, lots of uh, sun for the Uppold clan here. Well, that's very good. And that's, it's important to get your sunshine, folks. You heard it here. Um, my weather report, well, since we have Adam on here, roughly the same. Um, I don't know why Fort Wayne and Mattoon, Illinois, seem to be sitting right on the same thing, but I could save weather.gov a ton of time. Uh, it's because it's generally the same. Well, we've got a lot of good questions, so thank you all for joining us. We've been battling some some internet issues and some technical issues behind the scenes. We all know that it is a grand conspiracy to stop um, to stop our podcast from happening, surely. But uh, there have been some weird internet issues. Don't know what to make of it, but it gets the noggin jogging, guys. <laughs> but first questions first. Adam, how did Adam escape the great beast of the North? And corollary, is Zelwyn the rarest kind of North American cryptid? Yeah, so I'm going to take the second part first because <laughs> it's probably the most important thing to know, and it, and it involves how I escaped. And that is that Zelwyn is a cryptid who can be bribed. Um, I bribed him uh, with a variety of things, including holding out the possibility that I may need to order more handbound books from him. And so and a pocket uh, full of caramellos. Yeah. Um, and so that, that worked quite well. He does prefer peanut chews, but that, that worked quite well. And yes, he is quite rare, although I saw several small ones like him when I was there. So more terror is on the way up there on the tundra. <laughs> but my escape involved an unpleasant interaction with a transgender employee at the Bismarck, North Dakota airport. And that part Yikes. I'm probably not making up. So I did eventually get home, but I was late and I had to have my Monday class covered by someone else. And that employee is now deputy health secretary 
the United States of <laughs> you America. You got it. You got it. You know, we connected by both being Pennsylvania uh, former inhabitants. So. And both being both being men. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Very good stuff. Um, well, we well we cracked the code. And uh, now you know how to get Zelwyn. You just lure him away with uh, sweets. He also likes suet. That's a, a lot of people don't know this. We're revealing his weaknesses, but it's only to make him stronger. Yeah, and you wonder why you're having internet problems. It's because I'm going to cut you off. <laughs> Shiny metals are virtually, uh, that doesn't do anything. So, I mean, that's, to me, that's kind of the standard. You keep a, a few shiny distractions. Does it work with the little ones? I, I know it doesn't work. Yeah, with the probably. Ones. He likes, he likes things that are brown, beige, and maybe like a, like an olive green. The generally in that field of color. <laughs> Moss always moss always grows on the north side of a tree, and that's where you typically find Zelwyn anyway. So, well, all right, guys. The, uh, the next question, and one that is very important, is favorite John Wayne film. There are right and wrong answers, guys. I'm gonna let you guys go first. Well, now with with your threat hanging over us, I'm not really sure how to proceed. But everything I've um, ever said is a threat, so please at, proceed. At, at the risk of uh, derailing the the potential discussion here, my favorite John Wayne film is actually the 1965 The Greatest Story Ever Told, where John Wayne plays the centurion at the foot of the cross and has a single line in the whole movie. That's oh, that's on. that's his best performance. I, yeah, first of all, I thought you said the greatest story never told, and I don't believe that John Wayne's in that. <laughs> I don't know, Aaron. Uphoff, who is inside, is somewhere near Agartha right now, uh, would be the expert on that. So we'll have to consult right. him later. But so, so David is going, or Bukes is going, 1965, Max von Sydow as Jesus, Charlton Heston, John the Baptist, greatest story ever told. Interesting choice. Didn't see it coming. Not at all. <laughs> Does uh, anyone else want to chime in? Well, the one I always enjoyed, probably because I, I watched it the most growing up, was actually McClintock. I don't know if that's a popular one with many people or not, but no. It's why one are that you I all being enjoying. so esoteric? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> why don't you only... just say True Grit because that's the correct answer? Actually, that is the almost correct answer. There are three potentially correct answers. You can go with True Grit. You can go Stagecoach, but the only truly right answer is The Searchers, 1956. Oh yeah, because. Okay. Okay, the Oscar for True Grit was an apology for not giving it to him for The Searchers. The Searchers is brilliant. Ethan Edwards, John Wayne, returns home to Texas after the Civil War, and his brother's family is slaughtered by a bunch of brutal Comanches, but they kidnap one of the nieces, which would later be played by Natalie Wood. John Wayne and a half-breed Indian, uh, played by Jeffrey Hunter, who also played Jesus in a movie, Bukes, just so you know. Uh, bonus points if you know that one. Uh, go out to find her. It's a wonderful movie that could not be made today. So, uh, True Grit, very, very close, but I, I got to give the edge to The Searchers. Uh, very very dark, actually, especially for 1956. Well, could I, could I throw in there the man who shot Liberty Valance, just because I want a Jimmy Stewart post? Also very good. Yeah. Also go. very good. There you go. Um, yeah, we would also accept that. What we're, what we're saying is pick any John Wayne movie and you'll be better for it. Um, what about, what about the conquerors, Willie? You know what? I like greatest, greatest portrayal of Genghis Khan ever. Uh, John Wayne, you know, and, and, and you know what? John Milius was never got his Genghis Khan movie off the ground because the world, uh, the world was not worthy. 
We should really do best Milius film, Peck and Paw, uh, Eastwood and Bronson in future conclaves. If you want to hear us comment on that, let us know. Um, <laughs> because men need to watch men's films. That's what I'm, that's really what I'm saying here. You, you learn a few things. I got all of my politics from Starship Troopers and Dirty Harry. So, uh, what more do you need? What more do I need? I have a very well-rounded uh, political philosophy now. <laughs> but no, Abuke's really surprised me. It came right out of the gate with that. So, so your favorite centurion then is John Wayne and not Ernest Borgnine. Yeah, I mean, it's just a re- he del- delivers his his solitary line in such a compelling way. I think it's really you know the height of cinema right there. <laughs> Apple, are you going to chime in? Uh, I've I refuse to speak of any actors other than Mel Gibson, so uh, <laughs> I can't okay, say. Okay, solid, the absolute most based opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Little known fact: David is currently watching Braveheart. Right. We're all disappointed to learn it's actually Man Without a Face that's his favorite one, but. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, all right, guys. So we've got the important questions out of the way. So we're going to keep going on. We're going to go through them, you know, in, in kind of an interesting order. So you got to stick with us because we promise we're going to get to most of them that we're asked. Well, this is a this is a tricky question to ask. So I need a, I need a couple seconds to get to get to get my bearings here. What is the word fitly position on anabolic steroids and performance enhancing drugs? What's the correlation between righteous zeal and roid rage? Well, the, the answer to the second question is the correlation is a one-to-one. So <laughs> that's easy enough. They've seen the show artwork. I, I feel like the position has been made clear. <laughs> well, I, I have heard that there is no place for righteous zeal or righteous anger from uh, doctors of the church, but I present to you the feud between the macho man Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan. So checkmate there. Wait, wait, you're saying they are doctors of the church, or you're saying that... <laughs> no, I'm saying well, that... Randy Savage, I think, was Jewish, if I remember correctly. So. <laughs> okay, first of all, I don't think Lenny Papo, uh, Papo was, uh, was was Jewish, but I don't know that. I can't... Uh, God was born in Columbus, could happen, but I don't know. No, I'm pretty sure Papo is an Italian name. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go to that early life section of Wikipedia right now. Oh, okay. Um, nope. You know what? Uh, I stand corrected. Uh, mother was Jewish. Father was Italian, but he was raised Roman Catholic. So, but I repeat myself. So it checks out, man. It well, I'm pretty out. sure Hogan's Hogan's got to be like, uh, like surely like a Presbyterian or something. Right. 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 That guy is a thousand percent American. Right. Like, I don't know what Terry Bolia means, but he's got to be, he's got to be old stock. Right. <laughs> Well, Wikipedia is letting me down there, but if something's not mentioned, that means it's not true. So, all right. Well, anyway, back to steroids. <laughs> Nobody want to handle that. Um, okay, uh, David Appold, you are a glycine proponent, so please answer the question. Well, I I don't think that there's been a lot of research done on glycine. I uh, I actually just finished my evening tea, so I'm prepared for a nice slumber. I don't. I don't even more than yeah more than normal um I can't say that I've researched the opinion enough I I can't say I've researched the question enough to have a strong opinion I could probably be swayed either way 
All I know is in high school, there were lots of people who said, if you, if you use these steroids, certain parts of your body will shrivel. And that, that kind of scared me off for a long time. So that's kind of still where I am. Right. The official position of Word Fitly is stay away from steroids. <laughs> I feel like we need to say that out loud if nobody's reading between the lines. Um, you stay know, clean. It, stay it, clean, almost, it almost brought down Vince McMahon. You don't need that. You don't need that in your life. Did Dusty Rhodes need steroids to look like he did? No, sir. No, sir. <laughs> you cannot chisel a physique like that. That's right. all nature. Yeah. Not not so, all not all anonymous Twitter bro science is created equal. That's that's our position, <laughs> right? Now we've got one kind of related. It's about um, are beta blockers okay to lessen public speaking anxiety? Uh, imagine having public speaking anxiety. Yeah, this is not an issue I've I've faced in my life. Um, if anything, okay. I, I need a five second delay in my public right. speaking. I, that would be helpful. You just alienated <laughs> half of the half of the audience, really. <laughs> Well, I mean, is is this a case where maybe not so much the beta blockers themselves, but just, you know, more practice, you know, more actually working through these things? Because I feel that a lot of public speaking anxiety comes from just inexperience in my, in my, yeah. at well, least in my case. You know, there, there's always that. I mean, some people worry, like, if I make a mistake, will people notice? And, here, and here's one of the tricks. And this is a, you know, a sincere response, as if anything we've ever said has been ironic. But... I don't believe in irony. But anyway, if you make a mistake or flub a line, most people aren't going to notice. And if they do notice, they're going to forget about it within two and a half seconds anyway. And so just don't care. I mean, just let it like water off a duck's back. It doesn't matter. Say what you're going to say. Know what you're going to say. And uh, and just get up there and, and say it and you'll be okay. Uh, don't, don't sweat what people are going to say. Preach, especially as a man with conviction. And uh, if you're in a pulpit, you ought to know what the word says anyway. You should have humility and all of that. But if you're going to get up and say something, you should be fairly confident in it. And don't worry about making uh, verbal mistakes or technical mistakes, those sorts of things. I mean, you're probably not going to start intentionally spouting heresy. But if you stutter, people aren't going to notice. If you're grasping for a word, you know, pe- people aren't. And I think that this is kind of what's behind a lot of manuscript use is that people rightly want to be precise, but also they're afraid that they'll flub something. Or they'll forget something. Even if you forget something, it's going to be okay. You know, so don't so don't sweat it. You've got you've got Sundays coming, so keep it going. And, or do like what Zelwyn does and have a midweek service every week, and you just get more practice that way. Or <laughs> go out and street preach or something. Go go stand on a street corner and just shout if you want to. But uh, you know, these things are. Um, I don't think we need to resort to chemistry at the outset to help with uh, speaking anxiety. Um, it's just uh, you know, don't sweat it. I've also found that if you do make some major gaffe, just and you, you need to correct it, just stop, correct yourself real quick, and move on. I mean, it can be it can be that simple. I mean, yeah, we 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 want to look like we know what we're talking about, but it's it's going to be okay, right? <laughs> do you think that even um, you could even say that it's a bit healthy, maybe not to have like de- like debilitating anxiety for sure, but just a bit of anxiety about. The fact that you're about to undertake something so important, like you, if you're not concerned at all about doing it well, that's probably not a good thing. Well, I knew David Bukes would come in with a diplomatic and Christian Minnesota answer. <laughs> and I think that's fair. I think, I think, yeah, you need, you need a reverence. Um, you don't necessarily have to be cocky or anything that can come across as bad. And, uh, 
you know, but yeah, you want to, um, you certainly want to be uh, uh, humble as, as you are, um, you know, rightly dividing the word of God. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. I think also a lot of uh, anxiety or just kind of general tension or nervousness, whether it's about public speaking or anything else, using chemicals, so this goes for steroids or anything, it is kind of like, that's like your shortcut. And then the cost of doing that is down the road. And you're not thinking right. about that when you're using it. Whereas yeah. sunlight, exercise, etc., like a lifestyle change is going to take more willpower but that's going to be a lot better for you long term. Well, it's going to, yeah. And if you need to do, like, there are times where, like, you have, like, okay, there's the anxiety issues. Like, so let's say you're nauseous. Go to ginger first instead of, right. you know, to alcohol or, or beta blockers or something like that. You know, give, give, give some natural remedy time. If you're really anxious and sincerely, you need sun, you need exercise, take off your socks and, and get your feet in the grass. Um, look at look at hydrotherapy if you need to. There are all sorts of things that will help reduce stress and anxiety, and even even quicker fixes like the herbal stuff that that are that are not going to cause long term nerve damage or something like that. Right. Public speaking and drunkenness don't mix, and public speaking <laughs> and, and certain um, what do we what do we want to say uh, psychotropic drugs certainly don't don't mix, and so we want to be we want to be careful there. Because it does seem like the cure for anxiety or the quickly prescribed form of anxiety is to just throw a pill at people. Yeah. Right. And, you know, perhaps some people people do need that, but we really cannot underestimate what just a, as you say, Adam, a change in lifestyle will do. Sunshine and fresh grass. I don't know. That, yeah. It yeah. sounds like boomer advice, but it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> well, it, well, it's it's not because if it were boomer advice, it could be marketed to you. It could be commercialized. Well, and, they, could, uh, you know, they tried that with AstroTurf. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So I, I, I think that a lot of a lot of difficulties want to give you a shortcut around developing willpower and developing lifestyle changes. And right. those answers are always simpler. It's just that they're harder or they take longer. Correct. And they have the I mean, they have the immediate goal of just simply removing discomfort as opposed to yep. letting letting discomfort tell you something about a change that's needed. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, yep. and these are different from like, let's say you're losing your voice or something like that, like like a, a physical thing, you know, <clears throat> use some honey, get some water in you. You'll probably be OK. The, these are there are temporary uh, speaking issues, but that's not always connected to these anxiety issues. You know, people have coughs, people have colds. You know, there are, there are certainly perfectly adequate temporary remedies for these that we can use. And, um, you know, the old prairie, uh, the old itinerant, what I want to say, circuit riding preachers probably had all kinds of great tricks for how to stay uh, virile during uh, during these times. And uh, maybe they're lost to history, but but none of them were quite as um, chemistry based as what we have as what we have today. All right. Well, we've got to take a quick break. I've got to read more about the life of Macho Man Randy Savage because my world has just come crashing down. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. 
Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. The Conclave is all here. We are answering your questions. Had a lot of fun in the first segment. Uh, Dealt with some very hard-hitting topics, indeed. So now we're going to move on to um, some other questions, some weightier topics here. So the first things first, guys, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, election in 2-2 Fide, or election in view of faith. Zellin, what would we like to say about that? Well, the first thing that I would say about that is that we actually have talked about this topic on the the podcast before, uh, especially in the election controversy episodes, which we did about this time last year. And I would seriously recommend, if you're interested in the question, to to go check those out, because we really delve into the question, and especially as it relates to, you know, in the time of the Reformation and also later. So really... It would it'd be a far better way of dealing with of answering that question than anything we could do here in just a minute or two. Right. So so go back into the archives and uh, we'll be able to find it there. We we deal with it quite extensively. Um, uh, spoiler alert: we tend to reject it. So, but it has been an interesting. Uh, it is a very interesting subject throughout Lutheran history because certain uh, Lutheran fathers actually lean that way, lean toward an, um, a view of election in two fide. But right. that's for a, yeah. that's for a whole other episode. So, yeah, and like yeah, Gerhard and all that. We deal with all that in those episodes. So go check those out. Right, and maybe we'll link to it in the show notes. We'll we'll see. The next question: Does grape juice invalidate the sacrament? Who wants to tackle that one? I think that the question of validity is usually kind of a poor way to form it because invalidate means that, you know, I tried to get in, but the way, you know, the ticket that I had or whatever just wasn't valid. The question with grape juice is, can it even be the sacrament? And the answer is no. And for for a very simple reason is that it's not what the Lord instituted. Right. And it's something, I mean, if you squint, it comes close to wine, but so does Dr. Pepper or anything else. I mean, and, and so... You know, and we can we can tackle this from well the assurance thing, which is fine. You know, you know it, it enters it, it brings doubt into it. But sometimes we answer that as a cop out. Sometimes I've heard that used as, well, maybe, but it brings doubt in. No, unequivocally, no. Our Lord instituted the sacrament with these means, and with, excuse me, with these elements. Apart from that, it's not in accord with His institution. So right. why would we think it would be okay? And so it should be as simple as that. Grape juice, of course, is a very relatively modern invention thanks to pasteurization um comes about you know um as sort of a product of the temperance movement um but that's not to disparage the entire movement it just is what it is and so no and the same would go with um you know using something other than than bread and we we're really bumping into that more and more nowadays because of the gluten-free stuff the bread alternatives that are used 
Because we woke up one day and everybody had uh, celiac disease. <laughs> I I should also point out here that must or new uh, wine that has just been newly fermented is still very much alcoholic. So you know the the very idea of like with new wine and or must in the Bible. Yeah, I mean it it's be something kind of like grape juice, I guess. But like like you said, Willie, you actually have to pasteurize it. You have to actually kill all the microbes in order to create. Yeah, and, um, and even in the biblical use juice. of new wine, um, even when they're saying new wine, that can be up to a year. I mean, or right. something like that, um, as far as the Greek word goes. So right. it's not if you see the word new wine or sweet wine, it's not necessarily just immediately, you know, what's what's just been directly poured into wine skins. You know, within the last hour or something like that, it it can be a little bit longer, but nevertheless, the fermentation process, um, you know, starts. And I don't think that it's necessarily just the alcohol that makes it into wine, but grape juice, or you know, excuse me, that makes it valid. But alcohol is a component of wine. Uh, grape juice is an entirely different product. I mean, you know, if we, if we want to take it the other route and say, well, it's it has to have the alcohol, and that's the only thing that matters. Well, then we could be consecrating grappa if we wanted to. <laughs> Or Uzo or something like that. And uh and as a as a as a deep Italian that appeals to me, but you know, that can't that just can't be. It's 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 the it's wine. It's bread and it's and it's wine and it's universally available nearly and uh you know that that's why might be why our Lord instituted it that way. But nevertheless it is the way he instituted it. So so just stick with what uh, the Bible says there. I'll, we'll we'll go the fundamentalist route, right? We're good fundamentalists. And we'll just say, we'll, we'll do what the Bible says. You know, and we do get into these interesting topics. Like, uh, like do you guys use white or, or red wine in your parishes? We are red. red. Yeah, red. I guess I might be the only one using white. Is there a reason for that? or That's what they used when I got here. Oh, okay. And I, and I like to think it's something about... Uh, they're probably trying to pwn the Calvinists or something. That's the that's the excuse always used. But deep down in my heart, I know that a lot of white wine usage has to do with not staining the the pyramids. You you have heard, haven't you, that that's why uh, Lutherans use white wine? Uh, yes, I have. Okay, all right. That's Against the, the Calvinists. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, David. Um, yeah. How many yeah. best buy points do you have, by the way, now, David? Well, my I lost my card actually. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> do um, do you still do all of your preparation for the shows with Encarta? I don't know what that is. <laughs> CD ROMs are a little bit out of his range. Right. <laughs> He's got World Book eighty eight. That's all he needs. Haters. Well, all right. Um, anything else on uh, elements within the sacraments and or, you know, doing things according to the Lord's institution? No, nah, I think we got it. So we can move on. Well, someday I want to do a full hour on individual cups, but then totally defend individual hosts for the next hour. But that'll, we'll do that another time. <laughs> there it is. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So this is an interesting question. Uh, Lutheran hagiographies or lack thereof. Why do we say remember the saints, but have so little information on them. I blame the simul. <laughs> Go on. Well, uh, okay. I mean, if <laughs> if we're all, you know, sinner saints and we emphasize the sinner part to the exclusion of the saint part, it doesn't make much sense to write a hagiography since we're all miserable sinners. Well, okay, yeah. Well, this is this is actually quite true because 
there is a rich tradition of reading the lives of the saints within the church. And that needs to be recovered because part of the purpose of reading the lives of the saints is not to just say, oh, they were universally objectively justified, but that these are good men to emulate. So perhaps part of our problem is that we have 700 Luther biographies and more being published every year. But there are tons of lives of the saints available uh, out there. And honestly, kind of what we're doing with the forgotten era stuff is recovering the lives of of great men that people have forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I would, I, I think that in the past we actually did this, but yeah, if we were you better look, at it. Yeah. Yeah. And if you go back and you listen to like the Walter A. Meyer episode, a lot of that is drawn from his son's biography of himself, which is unambiguously positive. And I think that one of the problems that you encounter the closer you get to the present is that even when someone is undoubtedly excellent in something, his diligence, his piety, whatever, he has to sort of pretend like he's just like you and me. And then we also don't learn how to do prayer or diligence in preaching or whatever better, because the guy that is objectively better at it is pretending to us, probably not even writing it down, that he's just like we are. So I think there's a way in which a sort of reflexive egalitarianism cripples emulation of saints because that presumes inequality in virtues mm -hmm. could it also just be uh, like you like you were saying willie with you know the the million luther biographies that we have and in, in daily increasing that maybe we just need to figure out you know who do we consider to be saints because you know you, you think of like a roman catholic um, sanctoral calendar for example and they have you know like multiple saints listed for virtually every single day of the year sure but we, I don't know, we just don't have a similar list. Is it because we well, just... We do, you know, we do have saints within our calendar. Yeah. I, right. I think, yeah. I think we just don't know what to do with them. We don't have services commemorating them often. <clears throat> Sometimes. Sometimes we do, depending on your parish. Um, I think it begins with us. So if you have a calendar that lists these, and you can get, you know, versions with the Lutheran calendar, the seminaries put them out. I think the seminary calendar um, has the, the saint days, too. But if not, find one that does and go look them up yourselves and see see what they did. See why we commemorate them. Uh, because even outside the biblical ones, there are very inspiring stories to learn and very interesting stories. And I think we need to be open enough to early church history to just kind of take these stories as they're handed down to us. Because it's very tempting for us to roll our eyes at some of them or to kind of shake our heads in disbelief that God could raise up such men of, of great strength and, and piety. And, uh, and so we need, to, we need to be open enough to realize that God can and does raise up such men for a purpose, and not simply to say, well, they surely must have been as bad as I am, or something like that. Uh, we are actually meant to be inspired and motivated by what God did through these men. And so that's not, a, that's not a bad thing. I mean, it's a strange thing when you see churches that would— um, that would completely eschew like talking about, I don't know, St. Euphrosinus the cook or something like that. But then they'll do a whole sermon series on Superman or Batman or something <laughs> like that. At this point, Adam's going to tell me that Superman is Jewish and we, we know this, but you don't have to, you don't have to say it out loud, Adam. Um, so, uh, but you know, the, Bat the, Batman is undoubtedly Episcopalian. I'm sorry. Well, he is, he is <laughs> the wasp of all wasps. We get, yeah. Oh, it's just so, yeah. 
like Bruce that. Wayne wears Sperry's is what I'm saying. There it but, is. But um, <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> lost my train of thought. Right. So we will we will look for inspiration in fictional things, which is kind of a. I mean, I get it. I get being inspired by such things, but we need to be careful with that because it can quickly infect our minds and we can start speaking only in movie quotes and that and that sort of thing. I realize I just did a five-minute discourse on The Searchers earlier in the episode, but that's John Wayne and that movie could have happened. So, but, you know, Marvel, like Marvel, that kind of stuff, is it's fine as popcorn, but not for your sermon series, those sorts of things. So, you know, look to look to what God really did let's look at these nonfiction accounts. And uh, I, th- I think that we would be very, um, very edified by those things. But how do you deal with the hagiographies, like say, especially from the late medieval period, where it's basically just miracle story upon miracle story, and it can be difficult to discern, you know, the, the actual man behind the miracle. Does that make sense? Well, I, I don't like the search, you know, it's kind of like the search for the historical Jesus. If we're not careful, we end up, not believing in anything right i I understand like why somebody might be a little troubled by some of these stories or even something like the martyrdom of polycarp i get that but i think it's it's safer to err on the side of this happened because you quickly fall into the ditch of nothing ever happened if you're not careful and and so you you end up having a god active in the old testament not doing much for 400 years active in the new testament then not active anymore and, uh, we, and nobody in the Lutheran Church actually says that out loud. But if we're not careful, we can we can fall into that trap. And some of the stories, yes, do tend toward the fantastical, especially in the Middle Ages. You're, you're correct, but I, I still think that it might be healthier just to say, "Why couldn't this have happened?" And, or or to ask or to ask the question of why why isn't this happening today? That might be a fun question. Sure. Or or maybe just also, you know, are we reading these simply for the the, the miraculous simply for, you know, the, the wonder working which they are doing, or are we reading these yeah. for the sake of finding something actually to emulate? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. You know, what makes them saints? Is it the signs they perform? Well, there are many great saints who didn't perform miracles. There are many great saints whose legacy is this, a humble faith and a martyr's crown. And so they don't do these great signs and wonders. But when asked to deny Jesus, they refuse and they shed their blood for the sake of Christ. And they're saints just as much as any any of the so-called greater saints are. And so, you know, you have to you have to look through this. What makes a saint? And I and it's not the signs. Why is why do we call Saint Paul Saint Paul? Is it because he performed signs? No. That make that's why he's the apostle Paul, perhaps, but but not uh, it, it's not why he's Saint Paul or Saint Peter or whoever. These are things that these are gifts that God gave them that they used for to the glory of God. But at, at the end of it, that is not what made them into the holy ones of God. So, so I think that's a, that's an excellent point. Zella. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about the, what the, what the difference is in the appeal of say Marvel to um, actual historical figures. And there is some sense, especially nowadays of discontinuity with the past. I, you know, I see, you see this in congregations that used to write, you know, congregational histories, but don't do that anymore. They used to, you know, they would write biographies of their pastors or knew who founded the congregations. And those kinds of things, because of a sense of discontinuity with the past, kind of get lost in the weeds um, to, to our great shame, I think. I mean, because we ought to be praising those people for what they've done to establish churches. You know, this is just, you know, contemporary context here, but establish churches that we get to enjoy so that also, you know, future generations 
would say the same about us. But there's there's this sort of sense of isolation, you know, like what do they what do those saints have to do with us? Well, <laughs> a lot, you know, more than more than, you know, more than we acknowledge, I think. Yeah, I think I mean I I think that especially the the local knowledge because when you're thinking about hagiography, I think that this might just be a sort of like aesthetic of medievalism or antiquity for its own sake, and that's okay. But the practical use of this precisely imitation involves people you actually know or to whom you have some actual connection. So if you think about what was misused in the Middle Ages, it's usually incessantly local, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially if no one's making money off it as the large pilgrimage sites. It's really just this person was here. That's significant in itself because Christianity is a religion of the incarnation. So simply someone that founded this church or came here and started these five churches in my area, he matters, right? And so that applies. I mean, some of the saints that I, for instance, here at the seminary call the students attention to are the guys on our calendar, our commemorations who were pastors. And I'll say, I'll give them, you know, a little story. It'll take three minutes in class about Leah or about Walther or the guys whose names are on the buildings here. And that is productive because it's both something that they're studying to do, but it also has a concrete connection to their lives because this institution is not here without those men. Yeah, and that's and that's and that's very true. You know, we went this whole time and Zillin did not ask about Saint Christopher the dog headed saint. And we really <laughs> teed it up for him. That's your wheelhouse, man. Right. As I've <laughs> as I've always said, everything ever written down happened. So until, until it didn't. But. Until it didn't. Until it didn't. Then we'll set you straight right here on Word Fitly. Yeah, we'll talk about St. Christopher one day. That's the the dog-headed St. Christopher. At this point, all of our listeners should be Googling, but hopefully not when you're driving in your cars. But yeah, I think, I think that's, that's well said. Um, and so to kind of recap, as we're rounding out this next segment, um, we do have good hagiographies. Uh, we've just forgotten what to do with it. I think, I think uh, David's answer in the beginning is, is, is apt that, um, I mean, maybe the symbol does have more <laughs> to do with this than what we, than what we think. And, you know, I think there is something, you know, we talked about anxiety in the first segment, but there is some kind of fear of being better. You know, there is a fear about really walking the life that God calls you to. Because really, God calls everyone to be to be saints. And we're using saint, granted, in the narrow context here, right? But every Christian is a saint, and God would have you walk in the paths of all these great saints in one to one degree or another. And that can make people a little bit anxious, right? Because we do cling to our sins. No, I, I kind of want to stay where I am, and God'll God's fine with that. But God actually does call you to um to lift, as it were. God God does call you to, to be better. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm off base here, but uh, seems to be the no, pattern. I, I I think that's I think that's a, a good point that you know being a Christian is not just about you know, th- this kind of acceptance of just where you are and just kind of making the best of what you have. Being a Christian is a call to so- be something better, to improve, to you know, move forward, to, you know, become holy as the Lord is holy. So, I mean, there is this sense in which we are being called onward and upward into something greater. And the saints can be a help for us as we move along that path. 
Very good. All right, guys, we're up on our second break. Any uh, any last words on on the Saints before we head to the next segment? All right, hearing none, we'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken after this. But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. It is the Conclave, and we are answering listener questions. We've got the whole, almost the whole crew here with us. And so we're coming up on the what might be the last segment here. We'll see how long it goes. Um, and we have some very good questions ahead of us. Uh, one is an explanation of the history, development, and theology of the premillennial rapture. Now, I, we can only handle this briefly, but we will in the future do a full episode on this because it's very hard to do in a short amount of time. But when you say premillennial rapture, we're assuming you're talking about dispensationalism here. And so basically, you know, people can kind of LARP and pretend it goes back to Irenaeus and some things. It really doesn't. Um, but as a system, you're going to get it from John Nelson Darby, who influences the Plymouth Brethren. So you're looking in the early 1800s here, you know, 1830s. Um, it comes to America and is popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible, um, arguably still the most influential study Bible um, in history outside of maybe the Geneva Bible, if you want to call the Geneva Bible that. So it's by C.I. Schofield, and it really popularizes in American theology uh, the idea of a dispensational premillennial perspective. And we could also do a whole episode on the history of Schofield and who his financial backers were and what his financial motivations were. Very fascinating stuff, and we've touched on it in previous episodes. But we will do a full episode on this. So for now, we'll leave it with we'll leave you with John Nelson Darby, C.I. Schofield, and then from Schofield, it you know it goes to like non-denominational churches, Baptists, Pentecostals, and Charismatic groups. And so as those groups exploded in the 19th and 20th centuries, well, they really brought dispensationalism along with them. And so you've seen the Baptist movement, for example, change. They were not historically dispensationalists. And now it might be safe to say that the majority of Baptists in America are. I mean, you guys think that would be fair? Um, I just don't meet too oh, many. Yeah. I don't meet too many amillennial Baptists anymore. Right, right. Yeah, they would be almost undoubtedly reformed, which is a big minority. Yeah, influential, yeah. but a but a minority, yeah. right? And so, really, the Baptists are interesting because they could have went the way of the Campbellites, but they end up going the way of Schofield, which is quite interesting. You know, that would be that would be a good thesis for somebody. Somebody write that, so I don't have to. That would be that would be a fun topic. Why did the Baptists go the direction that they do? And, and in large part, it's going to be because of the publishers of the Schofield 
reference Bible. So hopefully that'll whet your appetite a little bit uh, for the future episode, but we will cover it uh, in depth. We'll look at early rapture predictions like the Millerites, things like that, what they went through, um, you know, all the way up to failed predictions of the, of the rapture in, in recent years. Um, of course, we want to be very clear. We do believe in the second coming, but it's the secret rapture that we are rejecting and that we believe uh, is a um, sort of a more modern theological invention. Except for David Apple over here, he completely agrees with that, right, David? I do. Yes, in every in all aspects. <laughs> very good. <laughs> all right. So the next question, uh, a very interesting one: uh, Why do Lutherans seem to baptize only in certain modes, and why do they tend to? So basically, it's asking why do we pour or sprinkle and not really immerse? Isn't the confessional reason this Article Ten of the Formula of Concord? The um, in the in when uh, adiaphora such which is what we would lump the mode of baptism into whether you're going to sprinkle or pour or immerse when that becomes a contested issue then it ceases to be adiaphora at least historically that was the explanation yeah and and I think that that you you've seen that a lot we don't actually have an issue with immersion as a mode of baptism. But if someone insists they have to be immersed, that's typically what we hear. That that's when the when a Lutheran pastor would say, "No, you have to be to be sprinkled." Although they wouldn't say that about other conscience issues. But nevertheless, that's neither here nor there. Luther may have preferred baptism as a mode, but sprinkling or pouring is the norm in the Western Church. It's the norm at Luther's time, and I think it's really hard to to get rid of that or to divorce ourselves from that. And I don't think it would be a good thing. I think that you could make the case that baptism in the scriptures can be sprinkling or pouring. I don't think that it necessarily has to be immersion, although some learned men would, would disagree with that. But I do think the, 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 the word, at least in certain contexts, seems to have a broader meaning. I believe the Orthodox would disagree. But, you know, Nehemiah is baptized in dew in the Septuagint, for example, right? Well, is dew really immersion? You know, the, the, these sorts of uses. But we don't want to get into the weeds on that one. There are some Lutheran churches that do do baptism by immersion. I think we've seen those. Uh, but they would tend to be of a different liturgical persuasion than um, you know, many uh, conservative Lutherans. Have, you, have any of you witnessed a Lutheran baptism by immersion? I haven't, no. No, no. I mean, I've, I've seen pictures, but it's either usually a church that in many ways behaves like a Baptist church or more rarely it'll be a lutheran church that inspired by the second vatican council's liturgical reforms <laughs> right. built some sort of baptismal pool right yeah <laughs> well said well said were any of you baptized by immersion well i'm not gonna say now right. <laughs> is, it a, is it a bad time for me to talk about my baptism i feel a little left out right now my second one was through immersion um, <laughs> Was that at the National Youth Gathering, David? It was actually at an Acquire the Fire rally. There you um, go. Maybe you're familiar. Was it in a cattle trough? No, it was in the Breslin Center. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, this is a true story? <laughs> I don't even know where the jokes are begin and end now. <laughs> I I have had uh, I've had people ask me if I would immerse their their children. And I mean, honest, huh. pious, pious people ask. They weren't, they were people who were not 
born and raised in the Missouri Synod, of course, uh, this question would come from the outside. But, you know, <laughs> I, at the time, I, I think what the way I answered it was, well, it's going to be impossible for us to immerse your child uh, in our font. We have one of these really shallow bowls. I can like, it's only as I can fit my hand into it. You'd fit a, you could fit a good size wedge salad in that thing. Yeah. Right. That's about all you can get in there. Um, but then the, what I, what I told him was if we do that, there's, it would raise questions. It, it has the potential to raise questions in the mind of the congregation. Why are they doing it this way? Does this, is this a different baptism? Now, is that a reason not to do it? Not necessarily, but at the time that was a um, part of my answer to them. Why, why won't we do this by immersion? And they, and they understood that they, they weren't insisting on it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and you know, it's, yeah, it's just an interesting, it's an interesting question that keeps, that keeps coming up. And that's why, that's why we're happy to answer it on, on here. So like like Adam said, you see Lutheran churches that look like Baptist churches that do this often, and then of course the more Vatican II leaning ones. So it sounds like what I'm hearing from you guys is you prefer to keep the Western tradition alive and pour or sprinkle. Sure, yeah. why not? Yeah, well, and and the word baptizo has a broad meaning of just washing. So if you just use plenty of water out of a font, you're doing you're much you're much more surely in line with the scriptures than you are by saying, well, you have to be dunked underwater a certain number of times. Well, thanks for not tagging in with me five minutes ago on this. Well, you know, everybody <laughs> went all silent on me. And I was like, well, I guess me and Jay Adams will be over here by ourselves. <laughs> so you, you did, you did allude to your own experience though, Willie, that you were feeling left out. You, can, you can't just tee that up and then not, not swing here. Uh, well, no, I mean, I, were you all baptized as infants, even Adam? Uh, no, I was four. Okay, but so as children. I, we'll say as children. Yeah, I was baptized by pouring. Right, yeah, in yeah. an Episcopal church? Uh, United Methodist. Okay, huh. so we're pretty sure Adam's baptized. And <laughs> um, <laughs> the uh, No, I mean, I've got a similar thing. You know, I, I'm, I was baptized by immersion in a very similar situation, Adam, but older than four. Mm-hmm. And so it's always kind of like, you know, I don't have that um, always been baptized into the church kind of experience. And I think that that's maybe the danger for some people wanting immersion is that they they see immersion baptisms and most of them aren't watching like Russian Orthodox live streams. So they're seeing adults or older children be baptized. And I think for some people, there's an experiential element to it that they might feel that they're lacking. Um, do you remember being baptized? I do. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I shouldn't have made the uh, the joke about your your UMC baptism. Um, uh. Yeah, no, I, I I did check that because <laughs> you uh, have to, right? Yeah, because we we have a very good friend of this podcast who is in the Hollow Earth right now, uh, who was baptized in the United Methodist Church about the same time, and being baptized by a woman turns out not to have been baptized in the Triune name. So 
I checked my own and I was baptized by a man in the triune name. But yeah, you got to be, you can't well, be I too can, sure. I can confidently <laughs> say I was baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost by a six foot four dude with a mustache. So I think I'm pretty good. <laughs> Solid. Good to go. Yeah, we're, we're good. Yeah. We're, we are very good to go. Was it a one. blonde Fu Manchu? Did he say, you're good brother? <laughs> it wasn't ter- St. Terry Bolia. No, it was not. <laughs> I mean... A guy can hope. A guy can hope, you know, dare to dream. But (laughs) yeah, I mean, and that is, and that's, you know, that's related to this immersion question, by the way. And I'm glad you brought that up. And Aaron's not here to defend himself. But really, the unspoken question here is about validity. So a Campbellite, a Baptist would say that baptism in any other mode, apart from immersion or really submersion in their usage, would be invalid or it would not be a baptism. Right. Yeah, for some people, this is a a very big deal, and they've grown up in a culture that says what we do by pouring or sprinkling water is not a baptism, so it has to be that way. And a lot of people's consciences are bound this way. And really, the the dangerous thing is not that it's bound to a mode, because we can argue that that's adiaphora, but it's actually tied to an age. And I think that's the greater danger. That association of immersion with adult-only baptism and that that is the only thing that makes a baptism. It must be an adult or someone of the age of accountability, and it must be in this mode. And then we get into some big issues there. Now, in a Baptist church where there's no real forgiveness of sins tied to that, I suppose they could sleep a little better. But if you're in a Christian church, Church of Christ, where the remission of sins is tied to baptism, and it's tied to having the right mode, imagine the kind of terror that some of these people feel. Because I knew even in college, going to a Church of Christ college where people, if they thought like if if a foot stuck up or floated up during a baptism, they had to get it all down or it didn't count. I mean, that's how strict Mm -hmm. some of these people were. Mm -hmm. And people really uh, torment themselves over that, believe it or not. But that's that's like a hundred years ago, so I don't really know what they do anymore. They might not care anymore. Um, (laughs) So... All right, guys, that was fun. Um, the next question, kind of related, when does adiaphora cease to be an indifferent matter, and when does it return to being adiaphora? I, I think, I, I mean, I think the discussion that we've been talking about so far has really kind of answered at least the first half of this question. You know, when, when you're dealing with a, a situation where you have consciences being bound, where you have people insisting on certain things, you know, and making it a you know, it has to be done this way or it's not valid or whatever language you want to use, then, yeah, this is when it ceases to be indifferent. And I mean, this is kind of where the whole question of adiaphora began in the first place, you know, insisting on things that really aren't commanded well, one way for, in the for scripture those who don't or know, another. Go, go ahead and define adiaphora for us. Uh, adiaphora just simply means indifferent things, uh, things that are neither forbidden in the scriptures nor commanded in the scriptures. The things that fall into this category would be, well, just use our previous example, the way in which you baptize. You know, our Lord has commanded us to baptize, but he's not told us specifically how to baptize. You know, as long as we're using water, we're, 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 use, we're following his command. Historically, it's, it's also been issues of like vestments, you know, do you use vestments? Do you not use vestments? You know, is, that's that was also kind of a, an adiaphora sort of thing. And the reason why, especially the question came up, was uh, during the Reformation. Uh, during the Reformation, the the Roman Catholics were starting to insist that in, in order to find any kind of common ground, the the Lutherans had to agree to certain practices, which 
some of the Lutherans were more willing to do and some were very opposed to. And so this is where this this whole concept comes in into play. But really, it is a question of if someone is saying you must do this, even though God has not specifically said it, then it becomes a, you know, for the sake of conscience, for the sake of Adiaphora, I need to show you that this is not what you're saying is not the case. Yeah, yeah, it's a good answer. And then so. Yeah, so there's going to be times where we're going to have to insist on something that is an adiaphoran. You know, so, you know, it's never a good thing just to say, well, it's adiaphora, so let's just jettison this practice. I think perhaps a sober approach to these things and a willingness to hold on to tradition is important as well. And then, as you say, you know, um, once conscience has become bound, once we begin to look into these things, you know, it's really hard to just answer the question adi- about adiaphora in a broad sense. You almost have to take it on a case-by-case basis or talk about specific instances to really illustrate this. And so as we do future episodes, we'll kind of talk about this, especially as we get into liturgics and other practices and things like that. I think I think it sh- should be pointed out here right away, though, that the question of adiaphora historically, especially prior to the 20th century, was never a case of this is adiaphora, so take it or leave it kind of a thing, like you can do it or you don't have to do it. It was more of a question of, this hasn't been specifically commanded, yeah. but we're still doing it for the sake of good order for, because this is something that's been handed down to us until a point at which, you know, someone insists otherwise. Because unfortunately, Adiaphora really has become that question of, you know, I can do whatever I want because it's indifferent. So it doesn't matter what I do. But that was not really what the, historically speaking, what the issue was. Right. All right, guys, any other words on that? Okay. Now, uh, before we get to the kind of the last big question, we are going to go a little bit over time today, it looks like, but I just want to tackle um, or briefly address a few questions. We did have questions about a website section for the home, like our gardening articles, things like that. Uh, Questions about recommendations where to buy things like crucifixes, icons, prayer kneelers, and also a question about explaining the Trinity to young children. We are not ignoring those questions, but we are going to answer them in the group at WordFitly posting. So be sure to check the comments section. We will definitely tackle those questions. We are not ignoring them. Uh, we will we will get them answered. Zelwin insisted that we have to answer them all, or he is going to drag us into his wilderness lair, and we will never be heard from again. So we are hearing the questions. They're all very good questions, so we will get to them very quick. So the last question is, a very good question, and a very timely question. How far should bad practices or heretical ideas be tolerated? And what can be done about them that isn't just virtue sake? Who wants to throw some heat? Adam, I know it's it's thirteen it's late in thirteen colonies time right now, but you want right. to chime in? So even I, the question really pertains to sort of levels of church life. So if you're asking like what do I, what do to someone who is stupid online that's a different question than if your if your pastor is doing something or saying something wicked or if your district president is doing or saying something wicked and the reason to frame it that way is because there are things that could be absolutely wrong right so I would place heresy as something much more grave than, say, sloppiness in the conduct of the service, which is also its own sort of, it's corrosive. Uh, heresy could be immediately destructive in a way that conveying the idea that what happens in the service is 
not really of all that much importance is corrosive over time, but probably not destructive of faith right then and there. So within whatever sphere that is, take the action that's appropriate. So if you're talking about a congregation, that's going to be different if the pastor is, let's say, persisting in preaching false doctrine than it is where, like in the case of a district in the Missouri Synod or the Wisconsin Synod, you have redress through both personal confrontation, but also through some sort of official channel. And knowing those things is always a way, I think, not to say, well, you know, righteous anger or the identification of error is always wrong. That is its own kind of virtue signal. But I think probably the worst virtue signal that the zealous engage in right now is to get online or in a group chat and just basically complain about it. You, you want to take action where there is error. You don't want to wait for it to see if the guy turns out to just, you know, if by ignoring it, something will somehow fix itself. I mean, it's like Lutherans seem not to, I mean, rightly not to believe that life forms just evolve from one another. That's good. That's biblical, right? Man is the crown of creation. But we do seem to believe somehow that errors do just evolve out of existence and will somehow take care of themselves. And that's unbiblical. Action does have to be taken within the sphere that will actually redress the problem. Yeah, that's a a very fair um, assessment. And yeah, just uh, sort of heresy hunting and then complaining about it on the internet is not quite the same thing as actually tackling it. Our dispute resolution process, imperfect as it is, should perhaps be utilized a little bit more, even though those wheels grind uh, very, very slowly. You know, you can you can make statements about rejecting errors, but, you know, in the ecclesiastical sense, for example, just to make a statement about correcting errors or not tolerating errors is not the same as actually correcting false teachers or censuring false teachers. Right, yeah, right. And so that needs to be done. Um, it's kind of the same thing within a congregation, too, or a circuit or a district. At that level, when pastors are, for example, are teaching falsely or teachers are teaching falsely, it's not simply enough to say we need to stop error. It's this specific person needs to be needs to be addressed and we need to have the sand to to do this. But it's not given to everyone. It's not given to every layman in the world to correct every Christian in the world. Right. Um, It was kind of like the uh, you guys remember the mid 2000s. Um, <laughs> vaguely right Do you, and so like back when we all had rss feeds and, and stuff like that there were a lot of of what came to be called podcasts but in those days we called them internet radio shows and uh there were tons of them and there were these discernment ministries popping up and it was basically just any bad thing they could find on any church it was kind of like the like a sun or a daily mail but for theology and those were born out of, I believe, sincere motives, but they kind of became absurd and ineffectual after a while. It just became kind of a place where you could go and just rip each other apart. And and that's not really, really what we're given to do. There is a place for that kind of thing. There is a place for calling out these things, but um, to make that everything you do, I don't know how effectual that's going to be. But again, you know, it could be, could be fine. What we need to do is, as Adam has, has very has stated very plainly and very well is that within within the proper spheres and you know it can't just be have you seen what this goon is doing you know and then posting about it you know on some some group some confessional lutheran group somewhere 
but uh, it needs to be sometimes speaking truth to power. It's going to take pastors and teachers, well, excuse me, men in the teaching office to to actually speak and, and preach against this and to boldly contend. And I think that that would that would go go a long way. And maybe returning to the old style disputation process that we used to have in the old old days of the convention. But you know me, I kind of larp like that. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it, it's almost easier to deal with a pastor who is teaching false doctrine if you're a member of his congregation, because in the case of Bible class, the congregation actually has a forum in which doctrine is discussed. Sure. Part of the yeah. part of the problem with our church life in so at so many levels is that doctrine is there is not time given to the presentation and discussion of doctrine. Right. And uh, I just, a quick plug, we did focus a little bit on this in the episode with uh, Reverend Bukes on um, local councils and Winkles. So some of this does get touched upon in that episode. Right. Sorry, go, go on. Well, because if you're talking about at a, at a different level, like um, where would you redress a seminary professor or a district president or something that's going to be within a forum that is often devoted to simply the accomplishment of business. And that's, that's kind of a fallacy that I see pop up in a lot of areas of modern church life is, well, I can't, I can't memorize my manuscript as past generations did or whatever, because I don't have time. Well, what exactly are you doing and what are we doing together that doesn't merit time devoted to discussion of doctrine. Well, you know, and I think that part of this is why you see a lot of people just going on the internet and kind of broadcasting these grievances Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they don't have a forum or they feel they don't have a forum. I mean, and realistically in many cases, they don't have a forum to to actually do this. And so that's what it is. I mean, I really do think that, and this is when I, when I say that these internet forums aren't always the best, it's not an insult to the people who are doing this because a lot of people they don't have an outlet for this. They want to see the word preached rightly. They want to see a church that teaches correctly, a congregation that teaches correctly, but they don't know how. They have no other choice but to sort of broadcast it here, and that's kind of their outlet for it. Yeah, right. Yeah, and so, yeah, so we need, um, you would say then that we need to, to actually return to the old ways where we do have disputations and forums, I mean, true forums. Yeah, and I would say that toleration is exercised within the whatever those forms are within a church body for redress and that a church body if it is a biblical church body whether it's a congregation or something bigger is going to have forms of redress for handling error and vice and if it doesn't it needs to get them and if it has them but isn't using them it needs to use them what you don't want to do is just give free reign to your rage Righteous as it may be, it's not that righteous anger is unreal. That's false too, but that there are outlets and channels for things biblically, one of which is church discipline. And if you just vent, right, the idea of venting is not in itself Christian because what, where is the end to your wrath? And your wrath doesn't work righteousness, as James tells you. So just venting is not, is neither going to redress the problem. You're probably just complaining to your friends. And it's also not, go- so it's not helping the sinner. And it's also not helping you to vent like that. 
Yeah, I think occasionally you 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 learn something about the character of of those kinds of complaints when all that is done is venting. It's yep. you know, are, yep. uh, if you don't have the sincerity to actually seek to do something useful about this, yep. then why? Are, <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> right. Yeah, sometimes right. it's just an excuse yeah. to get a cut in or a jab right. in. Right. Yeah. yeah, right. And that's that's not the ultimate aim. Right. Yeah, we need we need to make sure that our that our desire for correction is to save the erring brother and not yep. simply to get our digs in. That's good. You know, we don't want to be theological sadists. Yep. And that takes, that takes far more time than just getting your digs in too, right? I mean, you get this, yeah. <laughs> the, the comparison between that instant gratification and actually living with your brother and, you know, uh, going through the struggle together. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Well, guys, any other words on this topic? Zelwyn, David Allen? No, I think we're good. Well, all right. Well, hey, Conclave, thanks for gathering together. Uh, Bukes, this is your first one, I believe. Yeah, I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here. I hope Aaron uh, is okay. Well, you know, one <laughs> like equals one prayer. One share equals <laughs> one prayer, guys. We're going to get, we'll get, we'll get Aaron out of the hollow earth soon enough. You know, I, I went down, he followed in, he wasn't ready, but we'll get him out. He'll be okay. How, how far along are you on the, the map making there, Willie? I know it's. I know you got an endeavor going. Well, it on takes a lot of time. You know, I'm covering a, a vacancy now, and we're entering into the winter months, so things move very slowly. But the the cartography of of the of the Middle Earth is is coming along, is coming along. So, you know, we're drawing on the work of Shaver. We're doing well, but we're we're making we're making good progress. Um, Adam is actually the uh, shadow backer for all this. I think we could reveal that now. So. Right. I, I, I have had many experiences with the Deeros, and, and yet I live to tell the tale. So uh, it is a time of hopefulness for us all. Right. You know, key to world history here, and we'll, we'll have to leave it at that. Well, all right, folks, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com, slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Koontz, David Bukes, and David Apple. God love you, and God bless.